Let me pray again for just a second. Lord, uh, on our own from birth, uh, we are separated from you. And Lord, our minds are dark. We are unable to comprehend the truth. We need your spirit to do that for us. Lord, thinking of the Corinthian church, uh, Paul hammered away at that issue that the carnal mind cannot accept the things of God. And so we ask that by your spirit this morning, you'd be revealing to us, as Paul prayed in Ephesians, you'd be enlightening the eyes of our heart so that we can see what's true. And Father, each one of us brings certain needs this morning. I know that your word is adequate for whatever those needs are and ask that each one of us would hear those things we need to hear this morning from you. And then do them, Lord, or be encouraged by them. In Jesus' name, amen. There's any aspiring uh, television evangelists here. It's almost a dirty word today, TV evangelists, you know. Uh, eHow, on the internet at eHow, they tell you how to become a successful TV evangelist, which I thought was pretty interesting. You know, eHow, how to garden, or I don't know, how to do almost anything, and eHow tells you how to be a successful. I'm not kidding. This is real. You can't make this up. TV evangelist, and it's all... It's just right on down the road. So I'll just give you a few of their steps. The first one is you develop an ability to preach the gospel. Preach often and convincingly to an ever-increasing congregation. That's the first start. That seems simple enough. Hold services in tents and churches around the country. Gain a reputation. I'm not sure how you do this, Mark, but you must gain a reputation for charismatic healing and inspirational prayer. Contact local radio and TV stations, offer your services to fill late night Sunday devotional programming needs, prepare by airing your prayer services on public access television stations and YouTube. Now, number four was definitely my favorite. Prepare an audition tape by taping one of your prayer services. Matt, be ready for this one. Film the rapture present on the faces of your congregation. Catch your religious charisma in action. Hire a professional video crew to prepare your audition tape for a spot on the Television Evangelist Hall of Fame. I didn't know there was such a thing, but maybe there is. Send your audition tape and resume to Christian TV stations across the globe. Create religious programming. This is key, of course, uh, that you sell directly to consumers via the Internet. Sell your religious products on your own website um, how to become a successful TV evangelist um, I was watching television this morning Sunday mornings you know as I'm getting ready for church I sometimes turn it on I don't know if anyone else here does that but guys you know oh my goodness uh, the, the messages you'll hear Sunday morning on local television it's rather astounding uh, and the, the pleas and the appeals for money I'm sure everybody here has heard people like this uh, on television and somehow it always gets around to the money you know you got to have your website sell your product bring in the revenue stream etc TV evangelists have a bad name you know Sinclair Lewis in 1927 wrote a book called Elmer Gantry how many people here know about this, the book or the movie Burt Lancaster wow you know it's been a while movie done probably in the 50s maybe 60s Burt Lancaster played the role uh, 
Lewis did his research for this uh, sort of a diatribe against pastors and churches. He did his research in Kansas City uh, before this came out. This book was banned in Boston when it came out because churches and religious leaders were so ticked at the negative light this book, this storyline, put them in. Uh, Wikipedia synopsis says briefly, the novel tells the story of a young narcissistic womanizing college student who abandons his early ambition to become a lawyer. The legal profession does not suit the unethical gantry who then becomes a notorious and cynical alcoholic. He's mistakenly ordained as a Baptist minister, briefly acts as a new thought evangelist, and eventually becomes a Methodist minister. He acts as a manager for another charlatan, Sharon Falconer, an itinerant evangelist. Uh, He loses his lover, this gal, and her reputation when she's killed in a fire at her new tabernacle. During his career, he contributes to the downfall, physical injury, and even death of key people around him, including a genuine minister. Ultimately, he marries well, obtains a large congregation in Lewis's fictional Midwestern city of Zenith. Um, you know, huge uproar when that book came out. I think less so when the movie came out. But it was poking fun, literarily and in the movie, at, for us today, television evangelists, those guys that were selling snake oil and salvation and getting as much out of it as they could. You know, Christians historically, and certainly Christians around the world today, other parts more so than here, face opposition from without. And sometimes that's direct persecution. Sometimes it's another competing religious claim, another group. Uh, sometimes it's just apathy. We don't, we don't care. We don't feel the need. It's another thing, though, when the opposition is from within. When there are people under the umbrella broadly called Christianity who say they represent Christ and His claims but they're really there representing themselves. And how do you answer to that? And how do you identify these folks? And what do you do about that? And that's the situation Paul has in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 11 we'll be looking at this morning. If you've got to hand out their pink so they stand out, well, I'll be reading from the New American Standard. 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 21. This section of the epistle is called the fool speech. Paul's going to get into from here on, especially here and in chapter 12, uh, what he considers a foolish appeal to the Corinthians by boasting. And you'll see a little bit about that this morning. Uh, Paul, if you remember through this letter, he's referenced opposition in Corinth all the way along. And this morning he takes them head on. He doesn't name anyone by name, but he finally calls them out and gets very specific about them. We'll look a little bit at Paul's goals and his methods and then his opponent's goals and their methods. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11, with some comment along the way, hopefully for clarity's sake, Paul says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. We tend to think of the term jealous as a negative, always a negative. It's not biblically. God is jealous for his people. A husband and a wife, spouses, are supposed to be jealous towards each other in the ways that only spouses relate to each other. Jealousy here is a good thing. Godly jealousy, he says, because I betrothed you to one husband 
so that to Christ I might present you a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes, and when Paul says if, this doesn't mean they might, they are. These are the other guys, if, when. If one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, that is from us, you bear this beautifully. You take it all in beautifully, and Paul's saying you shouldn't, but you do. Verse 5, for I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. This would be the super apostles. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way I've made this evident to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches, that is, he was supported by other churches during his time in Corinth, by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brothers came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so." As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. But what I am doing I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting." This is blunt here at verse 13. Finally, Paul says, For such men are false apostles. They are pseudo in the Greek apostles. They are deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Again I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish, so that I also may boast a little. What I am saying, I'm not saying as the Lord would. This speech process is not normally what God or Christ would recommend. Uh, I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, and the many would be the pseudo-apostles, the other, the opposition, I will boast also. Paul says, basically, I'm going to come down to their level just so that you can hear what I have to say as you've listened to them. For you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you. And here again, it's not if. This is happening, and it's happening by Paul's opposition. If anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face, to my shame I must say that we have been weak by comparison. So first on Paul's side of things, what's Paul's goal and what's at stake here for Paul? You know, what does it matter about these guys in Corinth who maybe have changed the message a little bit, maybe they want to be thought as important as Paul? What's at stake for Paul? See, in verse 2, he says, I've betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I may present you as a pure virgin. 
Paul's concern, and this has been true and is true throughout the letter, it's not about Paul's place in the church at Corinth. Paul's concern is for Christ and Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. That's the whole concern. So there at verse 2, I betroth you to one husband that I might present you a pure virgin to Christ. So Paul says, you're like a woman that's betrothed to someone to be married. And you know, in Paul's day, if you were betrothed, it's a little different than engagement here. You know, if a young couple gets engaged today and one of them changes their mind, they give a ring back or they say the engagement's off, but you couldn't do that in this day. If you were betrothed in Paul's day, you were technically and you were legally married. Though your marriage had not been consummated, the wedding date had not yet happened, you were technically and legally married such that if that betrothal was, was cut off, if it was canceled, you had to go through a legal divorce. So Paul says, you guys are married already, even though we haven't sat down to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We don't see Christ face to face. He's in heaven. We're here. Paul says still to the Corinthians and to us today, there's continuity in the age of the church. We're the same group a little later down the road. Paul says, you guys are betrothed to Christ. That's the important thing. And my goal for you is that there would be simple, pure devotion in your relationship with Christ. That's Paul's goal. That's what he says he's after. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 7 when he's talking about the issue of marriage and whether someone's married or not. When he encourages people to stay single, he says it's for the benefit of gaining undistracted devotion to Christ. It's the same thing. So Paul's goal, what he's after in this letter and with the church at Corinth, has nothing to do about himself. It has to do with the church having this pure relationship with Christ, anticipating their future union in heaven. It hasn't happened yet, but we really belong to Christ. And that's his concern, is their pure devotion to Christ, or is there some distraction? Are there elements that have come in that have changed your relationship towards God? Paul looks at the effect of these pseudo-apostles, and he says, guys, basically, the effect is that your devotion or your relationship with Christ, because of their influence, is less now than it was before, and it's less than God wants it to be. It's less than holy. Your affections are tarnished because these guys are leading you astray from simple devotion to Christ. That's his concern. You know, this would be a little bit like if I had a sister or a daughter who was engaged to be married and her fiancé is living in another land for the duration of that engagement period and she develops some new friends and those friends say, hey, gosh, we've got a great guy that we think you should meet. And if that gal said, well, yeah, I'll go out on some dates. My fiancé's not here anyway and the marriage is some time off. No problem. Well, you'd say, now, hold on. You're already promised to someone else so that your affection and your, your heart, your mind, that already is promised to someone. You'd say, slow down. You shouldn't give away to others what only belongs to your fiancé, and that's what's happening in Corinth. The effect of these pseudo-apostles is diminishing the relationship of the church corporately and individually, those individuals in the church, from Christ. It's taking them away from that pure relationship. Paul says, God wants, Christ wants with them. So verse 3, Paul's goal is simple. He says, it's simple, pure devotion to Christ. 
When I was reading this, going through this passage again, this struck me, uh, and it made me ask myself, it's a good question for us today as a church, when I look at my life, pseudo-apostles aside, just generally, if I look at my relationship with the Lord, is it characterized by a kind of single-minded focus? Or have I brought in elements into my own life that distract me from Christ? And if my emotions, if all that I am ultimately belongs to Him, am I doing things or I'm involved in relationships with people that diminish that single-hearted, single-minded devotion to Him in ways that shouldn't be? This is a great, it's a pointed question. It was really challenging for me. Is my relationship with the Lord what it should be? Am I being faithful in this covenant relationship we've already entered into? Hasn't been fully consummated. We haven't seen Christ in heaven yet. But in the choices I'm making in my life, in the thoughts I'm entertaining in my head, and the people I'm interacting with, is the effect of the choices in my life single-minded, pure devotion to Christ? That's Paul's goal for us. It was his goal for the Corinthians as well. Well, Paul's methods, look at verse 6. How's Paul going about this? What's, what's his involvement with the church look like? How is he trying to gain undistracted devotion to Christ? The first thing he mentions there is knowledge. We might substitute the word truth for that also. So in verse 6, Paul says, I may not speak well, but I know a lot. I'm not deficient compared to anyone else in the arena of truth or knowledge. In fact, he says, in every way we made this evident to you in all things. This is kind of a funny thing with the Corinthians. You know, you read the first, the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians, and Paul says again and again and again, he says, when I came, all I did was present the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified. On one hand, he kept it really, really simple. And that's funny because this is, a, this is a group of people that think fairly highly of themselves, academically, theologically, worldview, all that good stuff. And Paul says, when I came to you on one hand, just related to the truth and knowledge, he said, I didn't want to get into anything esoteric, anything about future things or something that might have been thought more hip or more interesting. He said, on the front end of things, the only thing I wanted to talk to you about was Christ and him crucified, was the gospel. And he says in 1 Corinthians, it's so that your faith would rest on the power of God. You know, it's the gospel that's the power of God to salvation to all who believe. So on the front end, the only truth he wanted to present to them was the gospel. Who is Jesus? What did he do? And how do I gain the benefit from what he did for me? The gospel. Later he says, though, to the spiritually mature, I'm glad to go on and talk about other things. But when he says that, he's implying that they aren't very spiritually mature. He was tailoring the, the knowledge or the truth that he presented to that church to what he understood their needs to be. Now later, if you get to 1 Corinthians 15, you know, it's a long passage about future things and about the resurrection. You know, it's the single longest passage in the New Testament dealing with this. So later on in something that Paul thought, I need to give them more information, more truth, more knowledge, he did. So Paul says on one hand, my method to gain undistracted devotion to Christ is to present the gospel clearly and then to follow up with information as I understand it will be helpful to you. That's my method. 
The other thing he used as his method was that he communicated all this truth freely. Look at verse 7 through 9. He says, I preached the gospel of God to you without charge. I wasn't a burden to anyone. That means no one uh, gave me money during my time in Corinth. And by the way, he was there about a year and a half, we know, so it was for an extended period of time. And he says, in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you, and I will continue to do so. So in Paul's time at Corinth, he was never supported by the church in Corinth. He never accepted a dime from them. He offered the gospel of God's grace in Christ free without charge to this group. And he did so, as I understand it, because he was afraid that if he received remuneration from them, if he took financial support, they would be confused as to what the grace of God really looked like. So Paul came in and he says, I've offered you, I've told you the truth about the gospel of God's grace where you're freely offered salvation, and I've done so by freely communicating the gospel to you. No charge, you couldn't pay for it, I wouldn't accept a dime for it. And that's why. So Paul says, the other part of his method was, I've communicated the gospel freely, without cost, without charge. Now, if you look at Paul's enemy, the pseudo-apostles and his opposition, and look at their goals and methods, they are just the antithesis of Paul's, just the opposite. Look at the false apostles' goals. In verse 3, Paul says, your minds will be led astray. These guys were trying to lead the church astray. They were leading them away from Paul and his teaching and the truth. Led astray. Paul doesn't go into a lot of specifics on what these guys were teaching, but whatever it was, we know the effect was that they would leave the truth as Paul had presented it to them. They would be led astray by these false apostles. If you look at verse 12, Paul says, they desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are. In other words, these guys wanted to be considered the legitimate leaders in the church at Corinth. They wanted to be understood as, we're the tip of the top, we answer to no one, we're the guys you really need to listen to. We're the super apostles, Paul's not. They were usurpers and they wanted to replace him. Look at their methods too. If you look at verse 3 again, Paul says, the serpent deceived Eve. They used deception also. That word deceitful comes up again in verse 13. They've got a hidden agenda. You know, if you watch many of the television evangelists today, whatever else they're talking about, there's something in it for them on the front end, the back end, and in the middle. There's an agenda. Whatever they're presenting, there's always an agenda besides that. And that was true for these guys. They were deceitful. Now, I'll read a quote later. Sometimes people communicate things to other people that they really think are true that aren't. But that wasn't the case with these guys. They were deceitful by intention. They wanted to deceive. That was part of their method. At verse 4, they changed the message of the gospel. So Paul says they preach another Jesus, there's a different spirit, and there's a different gospel. Without specifics again, but they were changing the message about who Jesus was, what he did, 
or how we gain the benefit of that in one way or another. It's a different Jesus. It's a different spirit. It's a different gospel. You know, you can talk to people who, who will tell you that they believe in Jesus. You can talk to people in other religious groups that will tell you Jesus is their Savior, and yet the truth is if you push far enough, if you know where they're coming from, if you know what group they belong to, you'll find that they don't believe in the same Jesus. It's a Jesus that isn't God, or it's not really salvation by faith. You know, if you go to the Lion and Lamb website, the statement of this church's belief says we believe we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the gospel, or it's the, an essential element of it, and that God the Son incarnated, took on our humanity to cover our sin and our debt on the cross. But there's always some twist. So these guys, whatever it was, it's, Paul doesn't make it clear. We just know it's a different Jesus. It's a different gospel. It's a different spirit. That's what they're presenting. That's part of their method. If they were saying the same thing Paul did, selling the same Jesus Paul was, there'd be no way to distinguish themselves from Paul. So they have to carve out a different niche, a different way of presenting something similar so that they can draw followers after themselves, but they're presenting a different gospel. And by the way, uh, there's an old adage that says, uh, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And there's all kinds of things we can have liberty in. We don't have to do things the same way. Lots of things within the Christian church and still say, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no problem if we do this or that differently. But in the arena of the gospel, there's no wiggle room. And you're not free to share, to participate with others who are presenting a different Jesus, a different gospel, a different spirit. There's no liberty there. We have to be coming from the same sheet there. Paul said in Galatians 1, uh, in Galatians, it's, a, it's similar, a little different. In Galatians, there was a very clear, different gospel being given, and it was just like here in Corinth. It was by Jewish Christians, nominally Christians. And there it was clear, Paul said, they're confusing God's grace in salvation with works. So they were requiring people to be circumcised, men to be circumcised, or you're not really saved. You had to do this additional work or you weren't saved. So to them, Paul says, deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Same thing going on in Corinth, a little different. Um, they're disturbing you. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. It's a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you. Now, this is what Paul said to the Galatian church. He said, I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. That is, may God curse someone who distorts or who pollutes the message about Jesus in the gospel. Who Jesus is, what he did, and how we benefit from that. That's a serious charge. In essentials, unity. These guys were changing the message of the gospel, and they were presenting a different Jesus. At verse 12, these guys are boastful. They're braggarts. You know, they swagger when they walk. And you know, the, the, the thing about Corinth is these guys are so carnal. The church is so carnal. They so fully reflect the culture they're in that when the Corinthian church hears these boastful guys and sees their swaggering personas, they think that represents something good. 
They think compared to Paul, Paul's kind of uh, small. He's not physically impressive. And his speech, not what he knows, but how he speaks isn't impressive either. But these guys, man, they stand up. They boast about themselves. They tell you how great they are. And to the Corinthians, this appeared to be, in their eyes, this was a truer reflection of Christ than Paul was. And yet Paul's case throughout this letter has been, I'm representing Jesus, Jesus the suffering servant, Jesus the one who was rejected by his own people, Jesus who didn't look like a Messiah when he came. But they see the boast, they see the swagger, and they think those guys represent real success. If you look at verse 13, uh, deceitful again, disguising themselves. Again, disguising means very intentional. I'm being hidden. I'm partially covering up who I really am or what I'm really about. Verse 15 is disguising themselves again. Verse 20 uh, is interesting to me. Uh, These guys are like an abusive boyfriend or husband. Uh, Paul says... If anyone enslaves you, and when he says if here, he means when. They do. They are. Uh, Devours you, takes advantage of you, exalts himself, hits you in the face. Paul says, you remember, you bear it beautifully. These guys were so duped. They bought into the pseudo-apostles' claims. Man, these are the guys, and whatever they say, that's okay. And whatever they do, that's okay. And it wasn't. Paul says, you bear this ill treatment beautifully, and you shouldn't. So like Satan himself, they're characterized by pride and deception. Now, related both to their goal and to their motive, these guys were after the money. You know, it always gets down at some point to the money, doesn't it? Follow the money, you know, and you find out all kinds of things. These guys are after the money. In 2 Corinthians 2.17, Paul said there, we're not like many, and this was an inference to these guys, the pseudo-apostles. He says, we're not peddling the word of God. We're not door-to-door salesmen trying to make a buck by selling something. He says that's not what we're after. Now, Paul makes it clear, though he accepted not a penny from Corinth, Paul is not opposed to being supported by the church. Paul was supported by the church, just not this one. So in Philippians 4.15, here in verse 9 and in Acts 18.5, which all relate to the same time period, the church at Philippi was supporting Paul not the church at Corinth where he was serving. Paul was supported by the church. And if you go back into the first letter, 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says generally those who who give their time and their life to communicate the gospel should be supported by the gospel. He gives analogies, uh, soldiers, farmers, shepherds. He says in all those vocations, the people are supported by their work. And he says "That's that's the norm also in the church. He's not opposed to church leaders being supported. That's not the issue, not the issue at all. What he's, what he's opposed to is the, uh, the uh, fleecing of the flock, if you will. You know, the, the wolves within who are after the sheep and what they've got, not for the sheep's benefit. Um, this would be something like, you know, today uh, on the speaker circuit, the better known you are, the higher the fee you can you can charge. Uh, one of our past presidents I read uh, a few months ago has made $10 million since his presidency ended just giving speeches. He's well-known and people around the world want to hear him. You can make a lot of money on the speaking circuit. That was very similar back in this day. In the Greek-Roman world that Paul was addressing in this letter, 
Uh, you, if you were in the, the speaker circuit just broadly about anything, your goal was to sell your services as high as possible because that represented success. And your goal was to accumulate as many followers or disciples as you could because numbers reflected success. And so for these guys, if they weren't paid well, and if they didn't come in and demand a high speaking fee, they would have thought, we're giving this away too cheap. And the church was already predisposed to think, well, that's the way this works. And and this is the way it works over there in Athens, and that's the way it works here. And so they're asking for a lot of money, and it seems okay, and they're well-known, and so we pay them a lot of money. But it always gets down to the money somehow, some way. And it was certainly getting down to that with these folks too. Uh, Michael Scott Horton, he's a pretty well-known theologian, and he was reflecting on TV evangelists in our day. Uh, these guys would have been the TV evangelists of their day. Uh, Horton says this, he says, some of these people are charlatans. Others are honestly dedicated to one of the most abhorrent errors in religious theology. And here he was referring to the health and wealth gospel. But I think he nails it when he says, I often think of those folks as the religious equivalent to a combination of a national inquirer and professional wrestling. It's part entertainment and very large part scam. That's the deal. That was the deal then. That's the deal now. Uh, Paul and Jesus make it clear. You don't have to take a vow of poverty to serve Christ full time or to serve in a local church or to serve in the church internationally or nationally. Both the Gospels and the Epistles, you'll see, supporting those in leadership was the norm, but not this way and not to this extent. And for the true servants of Christ, it wasn't all about the money. Let me wind down just talking about the threat from within. You know, the church does face external threats. We still do today. Less so persecution for us here. You know, if you go to other parts of the world, uh, persecution, imprisonment, uh, the loss of property, the loss of time, the loss of liberty. Those are very real, certainly in the church around the world. That's not the case typically here. And, you know, it is interesting that you don't see much in the way of TV evangelists in third world countries or in the 1040 window. And for two reasons at least, there's less money to be made and it costs you something there to identify yourself as a Christian. TV evangelists as we know them, pseudo-apostles like this, don't exist in areas of persecution. There's nothing in it for them. They're not in it for Christ's name and Christ's cause. So if the cost rises too high, they're gone. And maybe that's, uh, maybe that's an appeal or a prayer for persecution. You know, the church in China, for instance, usually doesn't pray that God would end persecution because they understand it has this refining process in the church. And the church there is quite violent, growing and vibrant, and people are coming to Christ. But we only have this in places where there's a buck to be made. Uh, in one of these articles I read, this is, by the way, this is several years ago. One televangelist, this gal, was bringing in $100 million a year. $100 million a year. Um, uh, Haiti Lifeline uh, used to have on its board a guy who's a, a test pilot who would fly, he told me, $22 million private jets for televangelists as they tested this private jet out to see if that was the one 
they were going to buy. It really is scandalous what passes under Christian in the United States and in the West because people can use Christ's name to make a buck. It has nothing to do with Christ, has nothing to do with the gospel, has nothing to do with undistracted devotion to Christ. It just has to do with I can make some money and I can make a name. Years ago, a guy that was well-known in his time, he's not around now, I would watch on the television occasionally, and he really was mesmerizing. I mean, he would just look full into the camera and he'd just pour his heart out to you, and you knew the guy's a total scam. But you know, he was pulling in big bucks. And you know what the thing was? He and his college buddies had seen a tent revival, and he saw how easily people were manipulated, and he thought, you know what, I can do this. And he did, and he did it for years, and he made a whole lot of money. And one of the, one of the network news did an expose on him in which all the letters for prayer, you know, send in your prayer request with your generous offering, of course, and we'll pray for you. Well, all the letters for prayer were in the dumpster out back. You know, the checks were firmly in hand and, and in the bank. But this can only happen, guys, if we're gullible. And you know what? We're just like the Corinthians. We're really gullible. You know we're gullible in part because we don't read our Bibles. Could I just say again? We should read our Bibles. We should study our Bibles. We should think about the truth between the covers of our Bible. If we don't, when these shucksters come along, when these pseudo-apostles come along, when they're on our TV, when they're on the radio, and they are, You know, when the Elmer gantries come along, we're not prepared because we don't know the difference between the truth and a lie. And Paul talks about that. Jesus warned about this. He said, Matthew 17, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. That's the disguise. We're one of you. But inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. We're not one of you. We just want what we can get from you. Or in Acts 20, this is pathetic to me, and I can't imagine what was going through Paul's mind as he said this, but in Acts 20, verses 29 and 30, Paul's addressing the church leaders from Ephesus. This is a, this is a stand, this is the standard for the churches in the New Testament, the church at Ephesus. And these are the leaders from that church. And Paul's headed to Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested. He knows it's the last time I'll see these guys. And so he tells them, among other things, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, among your group, guys that I'm talking to, among your group, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, the group he's addressing, Paul says, men will arise speaking perverse things. They're going to twist the truth Paul had presented to draw away disciples after them. Paul said in his day to those guys, it's going to happen among you, and some of you are right here that I'm talking to right now. You're the ones who are going to stand up and twist the gospel so that you can draw off a following after yourselves. And those days were then, and guys, those days are right now. The same thing is going on, exactly the same thing. If we're not reading our Bibles If we're not meditating on the truth, we're just prey for anybody that comes along. We're just suckers. Elmer Gantry's come along, the pseudo-apostles come along, the televangelist makes the plea, and we ante up because they look like the real thing and what they shared was a little different than I've heard before, but they appear impressive to me and they sound like they know more than me. 
And man, they're making a killing all over the country and all over the world right now. Let me leave you with this, Romans 16, verse 17 and 18. Paul wrote Romans right after he wrote this letter, 2 Corinthians. And sort of on the same theme as he winds down that book, he says, I urge you, listen up, I urge you, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances. That is, guys who are going to come along and teach something different to cause a division because they're trying to pull people off after themselves. Contrary to the teaching which you learned, turn away from them. We should be able to recognize these guys. For such men are slaves not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Paul says, I urge you, wake up, keep your eyes open, read your Bibles, know what the truth is, and be ready for this. The Corinthians were a really carnal group. In fact, I think the sin of the Corinthians, and there were many to choose from, read through both of the epistles, their key sin was simply carnality. It wasn't a gross sin. It wasn't a great evil. It's just that they hadn't been conformed to Christ. They were still thinking the way the culture in which they came from thought. They hadn't been transformed. Their minds hadn't been renewed. So they were open to the same old lie because they had not yet bought into the truth because they were still living like they were unredeemed. Let that not be true of us. We're reading a book in Sunday school class right now that talks about Christian atheists. People who say they're Christians but live like pagans. You know, that's really, really common in the church in the West today. We need to read our Bibles and be ready for this. Does the effect, ask yourself for lion and lamb, for Mike Halpin, for anybody else who stands up here and teaches, is the effect of the church and the leadership, is it, at the end of the day, is it undistracted devotion to Christ? Are we, from whoever we're listening to, do we come away thinking, Lord, I see you more clearly? And Lord, I want to serve you more nobly or more singularly. Is that the effect? If it's not, there's a good chance something's wrong either with the teaching or with my own heart. But something's amiss. Are we following the Elmer Gantries? Are we stupidly, naively, dumbly, beautifully following the televangelists who are in it, who are the, the wolves in sheep's clothing? This is, we'll give account, guys. We've got a little bit of time on the earth. Got a little bit of time. We've got some resources. And we're going to have account for those. We've got to be discerning where, where the money goes, where the checks go. Follow the money. Where's the money going? We've got to be discerning. We'll give account for these things. We want to be like the bride, engaged, thinking about the fiance, waiting for that day, keeping our hearts singularly purposefully committed to him. Lord Jesus, would you help us be sold out to you? Lord, would you make us followers who cannot easily be deceived by others? Lord, would you help us to devote ourselves so fully to know, to embrace, and to live the truth of your word that we are not taken in by pseudo-apostles, Elmer Gantries, or today's TV evangelist versions of the same. Lord Jesus, help us to 
give our hearts fully and singularly to you now. We pray in your name. Amen.